Welcome to Sam Watches Star Trek, Monkey Off My Backlog, second weekly podcast where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is Sam. I hope there are no Egyptian gods whatsoever in these episodes. Tessa stares at me because it's been so long since we watched the last episode of Lost. <laughs> oh, in which yes, yes. Egyptian gods were featured. What's funny <laughs> is that I feel like that might I, actually I, be the overlap between like Next Generation and. I just want to point out that I broke you less than a minute into this episode. Uh, God, it's going to be. This it's, is going to be a fun one. Yeah. We're finally starting season two, y'all. It has been a journey. So. <laughs> We watched these episodes a month ago, yeah, by the way. Yeah, we, are, we so. are still playing catch up on our recording. So forgive us if we're if we're a little loopy during these. But we are going to start with the season two premiere, The Child, and the very next episode where silence has lease. The Child was originally released on November 21st, 1988, exactly two years before I was born. That's an important piece of trivia for me, maybe not for anyone else. That has nothing to do with the fact that this story... <laughs> Is a pregnancy story. No, nothing at all. Nothing. Nothing Tessa at all. Tessa was not the baby on the internet. No. <laughs> this wait, is actually wait, wait, wait. Tessa's origin story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The story was originally written by Jaron Summers and John Povell for the canceled late 1970s series Star Trek Phase 2. They were originally going to do a sequel to the original series that got scrapped in favor of making the films. But because of the writer's strike in 1988, remember how that fucked with the end of the last season? Well, it fucked with the beginning of this season, too. So the producers of The Next Generation had to search records of that project, basically gleaning ideas for different scripts for these episodes since they didn't have any writers. This script was eventually rewritten and amended by Maurice Hurley, who was the showrunner at the time. This will not be the last time that we talk about Maurice Hurley on this episode or in this season. Are we only going to talk about shows that were impacted by a writer's strike? Yeah, that's the theme of that this is, year. That actually. is what it is. Well, no, I think that's just the theme of the series entirely. Yeah, I think Except so. Except for the year we get interrupted by a writer's strike. Yes. Which I don't know, but no, no, we'll still be okay. But I think two or three episodes deep into this season of this particular podcast, we will be having... Yet another writer's strike. Yes, exactly. So, I think there's a pretty long list of things not to do during a writer's strike. What, right? The <laughs> yes. first one, if the first one is, of course, don't cross the picket line, the second one being don't be a scab. And I know what you're thinking, those are the same things, but I assure you, they're not. Three, don't hire non union talent. I yes. Would, I, would assume, uh-huh. I, I think those are the top three. Yeah. But so, I mean, right underneath that, though, don't cherry-pick scripts from series that were never made because they probably weren't good enough to be made in the first place. I don't know how much of this script was from the original script by Jaron Summers and John Povill. I mean, it could just be that this script just came from the idea that they had for an episode, and Maurice Hurley, like, was like, okay, what if this happened on the Enterprise D? You know, like, mm-hmm. it, I don't know how much of it is actually from that script, but this is a very controversial episode of The Next Generation. Well, it, what does it say that by 1988 or 87, when they first came up with the bright idea for this episode, probably still 88, 
what does it say that we haven't gotten to the point yet where nobody at all, just nobody at all goes, hey, you know what kind of storyline we probably shouldn't do? Without, without, I mean, like you can do this story all you want, but like, don't ignore the obvious questions related to this. Don't just be like, oh, women be women, getting pregnant. <laughs> oh, that's just circle of life. We all good here. Nothing's wrong. Sci-fi. Whoop. Well, I do want to talk about that because I think that this idea is interesting in the fact that it's clearly from the 70s sci-fi tradition. And I do want to talk about that when we dig into the episode. But the short answer to your question is Maurice Hurley is a piece of shit. And anybody who would have told him that this wasn't a good idea was on strike. It was your friend, Sophia Bush, who who recently <laughs> said, friend. your friend, <laughs> we're aspirational. I wish we were friends. <laughs> I wish we were more than friends. <laughs> wow. More than friends of the podcast, Sophia Bush. Anyway, <laughs> I... <laughs> What I expected, as our friend Sophia Bush pointed out recently on her podcast, in which they they finally got around to discussing their showrunner's attempted assault of Hillary Burton, and the fact that Chad Michael Murray stopped it. What she's you know what Sophia Bush said, and and she is of course no fan of Chad Michael Murray. So I've been waiting because I thought this would be really interesting, and what she said was. When you are first on the call sheet, you have more power than most other people are going to on the set. And that needs to be the, you have to live up to your role. And, and so, you know, I'm, this is just a stupid episode and I would really be interested to find out if anybody at the top of the call sheet had anything to say about it. Too, because you're right. Anybody behind the scenes is probably not going to be able to. You know, is either going to be on strike or is not going to be able to stand up to this person, which leads, which leaves us with, you know, the people who are in front of the camera. Right. That's that's the point there. It's just, I, it's interesting. No, I think there's a really good answer to this too, and it's that Maurice Hurley was a piece of shit. And we can talk about that here in a second, because you actually have brought up something that does impact this episode. But first, a quick summary. As the Enterprise rushes to transport samples of a deadly virus to a Federation lab for analysis, Counselor Troy becomes suddenly and inexplicably pregnant with a strange life form. That is the premise of this, and it is controversial for all the reasons that you might think. And I do want to talk about that. But the other reason I had you watch this episode is because there are some casting changes at the beginning of season two. And I think this hooks into what you were saying about the call sheet. Because Maurice Hurley was such a controlling showrunner and at times abusive mm-hmm. to the cast, mm-hmm. Crusher's gone. She was fired. Gates McFadden is gone. And at the time, it was permanent, and she didn't even get written off. It was just, she's gone. She's she's off doing something somewhere else. At the time, the reason given was that she was not satisfied with her character arc, which was the same reason that was given for Denise Crosby mm-hmm. leaving in season one. Mm-hmm. But it came out later that Maurice Hurley fired her because she would stand up for herself. Like, they got into, they got into it, basically. 
she basically would not let him steamroll her or other members of the cast. And so he fired her for that. And she was not brought back until much later. So I think that does hook into your thing. I think this is a controlling showrunner. Uh, I wonder if any of the cast actually did try to talk to him about this episode and were just ignored. I know that Will Wheaton has talked about the fact that he hated working with the showrunner because he would literally like position him on the bridge. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't sound like this was a good working environment at this point. No. No. Does that affect what you were saying about why this episode perhaps got made? Like, this is someone who clearly sees himself in, like, a, I'm in charge of Star Trek now. I don't know. I just, you know, when you're talking about worst episodes of Star Trek ever, and you have three seasons of a show with William Shatner and the kooky stuff that they came up with in the 60s, for an episode you were in charge of to be called one of the worst episodes of Star Trek, you fucked up. That's what they should put on his tombstone, too. You fucked up. (laughs) No, one of the worst episodes of Star Trek. You fucked up. Okay, I I like it. I like it. Are we we ready to talk about Katharine Puleyskai? So, well, first I wanted to ask you your emotional (laughs) reaction to finding out that Dr. Crusher is gone. Hate it. You Hate it. Hate her replacement. Hate it. Hate it. Hate it. And in conclusion, I hate it. At the beginning of season one, you did not. (laughs) At the beginning of season one, you didn't know what to do with this character. You're like, ah, she's mom. But you have become quite fond of Dr. Crusher over the course of the first season. We could say that my resistance to her character was (laughs) crushed. Okay, that's pretty good. Of course, I couldn't leave you in suspense. And of course, we've seen like other things. So you know that she comes back, but she is gone for this season. We do not have our lovely redhead. Instead, we have her replacement, Catherine Pulaski, who is played by Diana Moldar. I think that's how you say her name. Diana Moldar. I'm sure she's a delightful person. I am too. And actually, I don't care. the funny thing about Diana Moldar is that she was in an episode of the original series. Um, so this was someone. Good for her. Yeah, this was. And I like her character in that episode. We, we saw this episode. This is somebody who has a track record with Trek. She was also chosen. I don't know if this was Hurley's idea or someone else's idea. But the idea was is that this character was going to bring more of like a Leonard McCoy vibe to the series. I don't no. think she does False. that. <laughs> She's an asshole. She is an asshole. Um, and not to say that McCoy isn't, but... Oh, wow. That's that's probably some bad gender optics there. I don't think she's so reminiscent of McCoy to say that this character doesn't work because she's a woman. I think if we had a, a better mapping of a McCoy-type character, then it might suck and it might be wrong to say that. But that's not what's happening here. This character is just flat. Yeah, I think the reason why McCoy works is because you do know that he cares so much Mm -hmm. about the other characters that he can Mm -hmm. kind of get away Mm -hmm. with being an asshole to them, despite sometimes kind of going too far. This character has no relationship with any of these people. And so it's really hard to see how any of this is excusable behavior. I guess the thing to say is if by the end of this season or whenever, 
if I were then to watch, because we haven't watched the rest of Picard season three yet. Like if she just showed up, <laughs> like DeForest Kelly does, mm-hmm. you know, as an old man. Yeah. And, you know, that was, that was, that was fine. Yeah. Like, I just don't get the feeling that I would feel that way if she showed up in Picard. I'd be like, the fuck are you doing here? Replacement. Get out. Well, what's funny is the other reason people don't like her is that she's very, very mean to Data over this episode and a couple of subsequent episodes. What's funny is that she so she doesn't think Data is alive. She thinks that he's just a machine. She refers to him as it. You know, she asks, you know, like, does it know what it's doing? Like she she doesn't trust the fact that there's an android that isn't that has such a high level yeah. of command. And of course, the iconic scene in this that people keep going back to, especially as a metaphor for transphobia, is that she mispronounces his name. She calls him mm-hmm. Data. And when Data corrects her, she says, What's the difference? And, 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 and the fucking wrong thing happened here. The line yeah. should have been, What if I called you police guy? Yeah. That's what he should have. I mean, somebody should have said that to be like, Oh, you don't like it, huh? Well, I was going to ask you, because then he says, of course, um, and a lot of people love this line, it's not my name. Like, one of them is my name. The other one isn't. So my question for you is, is that I think Data does the right thing here. Mm-hmm. Why is everyone else allowing her to say these things? I mean, Picard pushes back yeah, Picard a little bit. Picard should have busted her down for being a space racist yeah, like, immediately. Picard is like, or oh, well, I trust we call- Data. It's not really speciesist either, because it's... It's, it busts it's, her down for being transphobic. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, but it's uh, artificial intelligence phobic. I mean, it's what it is. There's not a good name for that, but whatever it is. Yeah. Like yeah. that shouldn't have been like that. That's not okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that he pushes back a little bit because he's like, like we, like we trust data or like he says something, but it's so weak, like compared to like how offensive she is. Well, and the other thing is like, she has no... If she can't be a good person, she has no professional relationship to him, except when he is her direct commanding officer, right. which is an incidence that could happen. But basically, Jordy is is Data's dude, right? Like Because he wouldn't need a doctor, he'd need an engineer. Yeah. Although when Data was being uh, examined and taken apart so they could mm-hmm. put Lore back together... Crusher is the one that he trusts. I don't. I, well, be, that's because Crusher is a good person, right? But Pulaski would be the last person that Data yeah, exactly. would trust, right? Um, technically, I think Data is her superior officer. Yes. So e- even in like a military context, this isn't mm-hmm. okay. What mm-hmm. she's doing, mm-hmm. it's very. I think maybe what they were trying to do. Now that I know about the McCoy connection, is that they were trying to be like, oh, remember how McCoy hated transporters? Like. He hated technology, so let's have this person hate technology. But all it comes across as is mean. Like transporters aren't alive; like they're not sentient. That's also giving them credit for realizing what they were doing, which I'm not sure we can do. But yeah, if they did, that's what it must have been. Whatever. Uh, So, I'm sure we're going to continue to talk about Pulaski in the next few episodes (laughs) because of just how awful she is. I mean, she's very hated by fans who are all big Crusher fans, but also just she's not a good character. We all have crushes on Crusher. (laughs) Hooray. But we do get an addition Mm -hmm. to the the Next Generation family in the recurring guest star of Whoopi Goldberg as Guinan. This is the beloved character. What do you think about the introduction of this character? 
the bartender. Hi. If you're watching this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Hi. If you're listening to this podcast and you watched game shows in the late 80s, early 90s, I know what you're thinking. If somebody had told you that a famed Hollywood Square alumnus was going to join Star Trek, you would have, in fact, guessed Bruce Valanche. But here we are with treasure, Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg. Gilbert Godfrey. That would have been fun. So Whoopi Goldberg was a huge Star Trek fan, was actively pursuing a role on this series Mm -hmm. for years because she credits Nichelle Nichols as being someone who allowed her to realize that black women like herself could Mm -hmm. be on television, Mm -hmm. which is a common story, I think, for a lot of black actors on television now. A lot of them will say that Nichelle Nichols, like seeing them on her on Tell her their television screen was a big influence on them. Uh, she actually had to call them to say, "No, I really am interested. I want to be on this show." I think it's I think it's really interesting that of all I'm trying to think of all the cast main and recurring in this the the two that are consistently seen as role models are two black actors. Like, yes, I, I think yeah. that's I think that's great. And I mean, yeah, I know if you're an English Shakespearean actor, you're like, what about my dude? And I'm like, that's fine. Well, outside Whatever. of outside of acting, though, like right. because um, they I mean, you could argue that both LeVar Burton and Whoopi Goldberg have had larger cultural impacts. Than Patrick Stewart has. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, Patrick Stewart's great. Don't get me wrong. And he and Ian McKellen are treasures, both individually and as a unit of whatever it is they are. That's great. <laughs> whatever but, it is they are. Well, and whatever it is they are has had cultural impact, right, too. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you know, it's really interesting when you hear people talk about comedy, stand-up comedy, what have you. There are so few, I mean, not so much now, although it's still pretty bad to hear it. I mean, of course, we talk about stand-up comedy. It's just a very toxic place. But but anytime you have, you know, whether it's Whoopi Goldberg or Margaret Cho or, you know. Leslie Rose, Jones. Rosie O'Donnell. I mean, yeah. I'm just thinking about in the 90s specifically, not just people of color just women let alone a woman of color again like Whoopi Goldberg or Margaret Cho those are really big influences for a lot of people and of course then you can talk about LeVar Burton which you know name me another actor in Hollywood who's known for reading for literacy literacy I mean, those are synonymous terms when you talk about LeVar right. Burton. Like, I'm not sure. I think people might think about his literacy more than they think about Star Trek, they, even though... I assure you they do. Well, I mean, even though he is also <laughs> very much tied to this role. Right. Of course, uh, so the character Guinan is named after Mary Texas Guinan, who was a Prohibition-era speakeasy owner, which I think is great. Um, Don't we see her in Picard owning a speakeasy yeah, in uh, season yeah. two? That was... Like the younger version? Yeah, the obviously. younger version of uh, of Guinan. Yeah. That was one of the three things that didn't suck about season two of Picard. <laughs> Guinan never you know, sucks. There's, there's been more things that were cool in the single episode of season three of Picard that we've watched than the entirety of season two. It's true. 
Don't so, ask me to name them because it's been even longer since we watched that. <laughs> <laughs> so along with Guinan, we get the bar, 10 Forward, which is this new setting on the ship. I think 10 Forward is great. I love that it's it's clearly a bar, but obviously like people like hang out and eat mm-hmm. there too. So it's kind of like a, a bar restaurant. Wesley's there and everyone's cool with it. Like I, I really like, I mean, you can argue about the casting choice, but I really like in the Orville. It's nice that uh, Seth MacFarlane also does this kind of bar situation and, you know, in a different role, has famous comedian like Whoopi Goldberg, Norm MacDonald, to, to play a role. Also, I have a question. Yes. I have a question. And, and you can tell me if there's an actual answer to this or not. What about hangovers? There has to be, by this point, a like, foolproof hangover cure, right? I would assume so. Right? Yeah. Okay. That would be I w- interesting. I wonder if they just hand them out at the door. I like would, here's a. I just would love take to this go. Can you imagine spray. a better place than a space bar with like a cool bartender? No, like, absolutely name not. A, name a single cooler place. No, absolutely not. So I will say though about Guinan is that the other one of the big storylines of this episode because we have this episode is kind of like you know putting all these other characters online for their season trajectories is that uh, Wesley, because his mom has suddenly left the equation, is, of course, stuck trying to figure out, like, what he wants out of life. So he, at the beginning of the episode, he's all set to join his mother wherever she is, and they're going to send him off. But then he struggles in the episode with asking for what he wants. He's finally able to do it at the end where he asks to stay. Uh, But a big part of him getting to that decision is his discussion with Guinan. The fact that she's able to talk about asking for what he needs and making decisions on his own. Is she a better therapist already than Deanna? Like, because everyone's talking to her about their shit. Okay, here's the thing. Deanna's not a good therapist. (laughs) I'm sorry if that's what you thought. There's a lot of things that are just goofy about this show, like the Triforce of Command chairs, <laughs> like first in command, second in command, and a psychic. <laughs> Fine. I mean, that's obviously like a like a good add-on. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, okay, great. You can read people's minds. I can think of several situations where that would be helpful. It's, it counselor, though? No. And we all know the stereotype of the, you know, the best therapist is the bartender, right? I mean, that's just, that's just pop culture right there. And I just think it's so interesting, though, that in the first season, we see Deanna really have this weird confrontational style when it comes to other people's problems. Like, she'll be like, like, remember when, when Picard encountered his former love and she was like, you're being bothered in front of the entire bridge about like his love life. Guinan has a very different approach, mm-hmm. which is very much more of that, like, I'm going to help you. Pro-. Like, she asks questions of Wesley. She, like, she seeks him out to help him, but she's not just, like, telling him what to do, right? Like, she's she's kind of asking him questions, kind of giving him, like, more low-key advice so he can figure it out on his own. Do you, you remember when Whoopi Goldberg was in Ghost? And she was like a psychic. You remember that? Yes, I do remember that, actually. (laughs) She's a better bartender than a medium. Let's just say that. that. That's absolutely fair. Um, And then just really briefly before we move off of her, um, during that conversation with Wesley, Wesley talks about how uh, the entire crew is gossiping about her mysterious Mm -hmm. origins. Uh, Guinan does come from a very mysterious species 
the mythology of which is going to unfold as we go right. through the series. Although a lot, there are still we more. We saw that in Picard. We I saw mean. that in Picard. There's still more questions than answers about yeah. her species. But do you think the fact that we discover that her species is very long lived, and you know this from Picard because we right. saw a younger version of her, mm-hmm. do you think that has something to do with her ability to be such a good bartender therapist? Imagine this. So imagine if Data dreamed of electric sheep and had empathy. (laughs) Okay. Right? Like, the the whole thing about Data is Data is trying to learn about human problems, basically. Right. Right? Because he comes with, he comes with a, um, a full download of human facts, basically. Yes. And so... You know, the rest is what we would call intangibles or feelings or the stuff that empathy's made of, right? We're okay with that. That's cool. Now, imagine if, if again, he could dream of an electric sheep and he actually had all of the expertise of understanding what empathy is. Yes. Right? But the thing that we wouldn't get from data that we do get from Guinan is the sense of disconnection. There's a distance there. And so, you know, what, what makes her character effective is that distance. I guess what I'm trying to say is the long lives part doesn't matter because again, we could imagine if we can imagine AI that didn't just have the facts, but had the, you know, the, the feelings too, we would still be dealing with a data who didn't have distance. Right. right. Who didn't know how to manage yeah. those emotions and those no, boundaries. I mean, and, and, and that kind of distance could come with time, sure. Right. I'm not sure that it does. I, I think that there's... I don't know. But that's, that's, that's what it is. The ability to be part of this endeavor without being... It's like she's part of it without actually being part of it. Right. And she's not part of Starfleet, which I think goes like she's just a bartender who Who lives on this ship. Yeah. You can just insult superior officers and nothing happens (laughs) after all. I'm not sure I like hierarchies that don't actually work. I mean, she is a pretty straight shooter with Picard, which I think he needs. Let's talk about the episode itself. We we have to talk about the alien we, pregnancy in the room. Do we have to? So a lot of people Who did it better? (laughs) Who did it better? Deanna? Scully. Oh, I forgot about Scully. I just hate this so much. I hate all of it. It's no, it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. And and I don't know that there's a good version of it. Right. So I don't know if there could be. The obviously the well, bad actually, part I do. of this. You know what it's called? Consent. Yeah. So the bad part of this is obviously that this alien life form, who we're just gonna call Ian, because that's the name that Deanna gives him after he's born, is impregnates himself into Deanna. Like, it's not like he gives her a child. It's that it is him Mm -hmm. who becomes the child. Mm -hmm. Deanna is pregnant. Um, It's an alien pregnancy. It's sped up quite a bit, um, which is something that talks a lot about in the episode. uh, Betazoids have a 10-month incubation period. She gives birth to Ian in like three days. That's obviously not great. No. Because there's a lot of consent issues there. I think 
that the most interesting part of this is actually the conversation they have when she when she and Pulaski tell the rest of the bridge staff that she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, the fact that she has to tell the rest of the bridge staff that she's pregnant. I mean, I get like this is an unusual circumstance, but like it is really weird to be like this is a ship matter. <laughs> like the fact that she's pregnant. I just the fact that they didn't use it for comedy at Riker's expense is really just mind-blowing, by the way. If you're going to do this, at yeah. least make the joke that makes the most sense. I, and we should we should actually talk about Riker, too. But I actually think the most interesting part is when they're around that conference table, the facts are presented, mm-hmm. and immediately the rest of the table starts talking about, like, what they should mm-hmm. do. Like, we sh- like Worf is like, we should terminate it. It's a, yeah. it's a threat to the ship. And, like, you just, you hear their voices slowly fade away as Deanna's, like, trying to connect with her own mm-hmm. emotions. To me, this is the most impactful part part of the episode because I think in a very 70s way mm-hmm. and I say 70s because this is from a script from the 70s mm-hmm. that they are trying to engage with abortion and the Not idea that the idea that like all of these men sitting around a conference table are trying to tell her what she should do mm. with her body without actually even talking to her I mean it's uh, ham-handed I mean again in a weird way, you're giving them credit for things I'm not <laughs> sure that they do. You're like, they're doing a thing about abortion. Are they? Are they really? Oh, well, it's or just are a- they just doing the thing? I mean, it's like, it is quite possible that this whole episode was put together entirely by men who were apparently unquestionable or you'll be fired. And they never once thought. Is this rape? Do, <laughs> like- well, it's not even that. It's like, oh, the woman who's pregnant should have the biggest opinion about the thing that's happening to her, which by the way, it's not a pregnancy. We can come back to that. But, right. Uh, but, but yeah, of course not. I, I can think of many, many scenarios in many different time periods in which you are giving them way too much credit. Whether you are or not, it eh, doesn't matter. This sucks. Um, I do want to hear about why this isn't a pregnancy. Well, because it's not. Explain. <laughs> <laughs> it, so, okay. So there's two things and, I will say up front, these two things, these two qualifications can either be things that completely change the story, how it's viewed, or it's just semantics. It doesn't make a difference. It's just word choice. And and the thing about it is, if you view what happens in this episode differently and you say it's rape and you say it's pregnancy, I'm not here to correct you on that. Having said that, there is no sexual act. So, is it assault? Yes. Is it uh, lack of consent? Yes. Is it violation of bodily autonomy? Yes. But it isn't rape in the sexual assault definition. Because it isn't. Okay. But it doesn't mean it's not bad. Nobody's saying that. It's just it's different. And as you pointed out, Ian talks about how biologically it's not a pregnancy there was no fertilization there was no part of that process that happened right Mm -hmm. and so again doesn't it if you see it differently it doesn't matter i mean whatever you see it is is whatever you see it as but but from that's what i came away from the episode thinking is that if there's anything that actually happened purposely in this episode it was those two things. 
And then people were like, nope, we're just going to ignore that and just push on and be like, hey, you shouldn't have had this, this, this rapey violation pregnancy episode, neither of which. And so, you know, just looking at what they tried to do here, I think to me, the questions are more interesting when you take that element out of it, because again, you still have issues of bodily autonomy and consent to get at. And I think that's what most people want to talk about in the in this episode. And, you know, that's what Star Trek tries to do in a lot of ways. I've seen a lot of unsuccessful attempts at it, but when it's at its best, it does it successfully. Is And that's the, the ultimate goal of science fiction. If you take us out of our current context and talk about difficult issues, it's easier to do that in science mm-hmm. fiction. You'll get blacklisted less. You'll have a bigger chance of being published. Right. I mean, yeah. it's all of those things. So this is very much an attempt to do that, but it's a bad attempt right. because it fails to take it out of the context. Well, and you know, putting aside all of that stuff, there is the 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 explanation for why this happens is that this is sort of a first contact situation. Mm-hmm. Like this being known as Ian mm-hmm. wants to experience organic life is not an organic being mm-hmm. wants to experience it. And that as, you know, as, as a child, mm-hmm. <laughs> as a, as, as Ian, the child is very curious about organic life uh, experiences, both pain and pleasure right. and like wants to seek out those sensations. Right. Well, we're supposed to compare them to data. Right. Which is why we get the ragging on data by Pulaski mm-hmm. in the episode, right? We're supposed <laughs> to see a connection there. Right. Right. Because these are two beings who are trying to understand what it is to be human, and they're doing it in radically different ways, up to and including the fact that Ian is, Ian is responsible for his own creation, and the creation of artificial intelligence is the ultimate lack of agency right because he was created he didn't ask to be born whereas ian not only well actually he didn't ask which is the whole point right and so i i think the the interesting thing is to compare the two um that reminded me of a line from mass effect where uh there's a there's a argument about synthetic versus organics and are they always doomed to fight each other but and and he's a character says like Synthetics always know that we created us and they'll always hate us for it, which I think is really interesting. But organic children can do that too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's yeah. no real difference there. I mean, this, this, and, and we're right back at Frankenstein, right? Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, that, that was Mary Shelley's thing, right? I didn't ask to be born. And not only did I not ask to be born, had I not been born, I wouldn't have killed you. Right. And now I have to carry that. Exactly. Thanks, mom. Thanks, mom. And dad. Yeah, she was real fucked up. He literally had God in his name. Oh, that I mean, that all kinds of complexes coming here, but but it all goes back to that. And so this being who takes this action, and I guess the point too is, if he didn't understand humanity, he wouldn't understand why it's a problem. So there's your. You I know, still feel there's your like, alien conundrum right there. I still feel like there could have been a way in which he could have presented this option to her, and she would have probably said yes. Well, beforehand, yes, but but that's the issue with first contact, right? Right. Is that uh, and and this? I don't know. Kind of seems like a case for why you have to have rules for first contact that involve you must be tall this tall to ride this ride, intellectually and technologically speaking, right? 
And this is kind of like skipping a grade, mm-hmm. you know, and, and not having the quote unquote emotional intelligence, which we know is a real thing. I mean, it's weaponized against people, including me, but, you know, it, it, it is real. And so this is somebody who or a spe- some someone, something, some <laughs> being who may or may not have been ready for for first contact. But what this does is, you know, first contact in theory could cause damage to Starfleet as or, you know, the people acting as Starfleet or humanity or space or people or everything else in general, right? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, we, we think about the fact that, that people are people despite their cultural differences and we share some sort of underlying understanding when, again, that's empathy. You, why would in the world would you assume that, that all alien species do that? I mean, you could have an alien species that, that could do something really bad to you and have no idea that it was bad just because why would they? That's what happens in the last season of The Owl House with The Collector. I'm not going to talk right. about it much more because that but episode the, just came out, but that is basically what happens. But, but it's interesting to think about that first contact can essentially protect, we think about it as protecting the... Um, the, the people who, who are being contacted. Yes, right. <laughs> the contactees. Right, but it can go both ways, and this could be an example of that, right? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that really bothers me about this episode, besides all the other stuff that bothers me. There's another There's plot. another thing. Uh, well, there is, but shouldn't... The McGuffin virus. So for Deanna, this is a real child. Like, regardless of what how it plays out and what happens... I mean, she has a connection with this child. She treats this as a pregnancy. She treats Ian as her child. She names him Ian after her father, which shows that she has that connection. But her body shows no evidence of the fact that she had a child. And he's not really mentioned again after this, which, to be fair, that's 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 the price of episodic television sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Is that things just don't ever go anywhere. Shouldn't this, his birth and death, have more of an impact on her, on the crew, like even though he was only alive for a short period of time. What I really like about it, about many television writers these days is the memory. And you can still do this with episodic television, but I love the fact, you know, we talk about shows that are very good at remembering jokes that they've made and paying them off later and later and later. Mm-hmm. Somebody, somebody, and maybe this happens, but I assume it doesn't. The next time her mom shows up, somebody should casually drop in her earshot that Deanna was pregnant. Right, yeah. (laughs) Just just let it happen. Should be a thing. I will say that Marina Sirtis was very happy about this episode because it gave her something to do that wasn't love interest. Oh, good. So, you know, like, I don't know if that affects your opinion of this episode, but she enjoyed being able to do something. But there are a couple of other things that happen in this episode that we should really briefly touch on. We already talked about Wesley struggling with the idea of leaving the Enterprise. He's finally able to articulate to Picard that this is his home, that he wants to stay there, which leads us to the funniest, I think, scene almost in the entire series. And it's, it's so horrible that it's attached to this episode. But the scene where they all troll him at the end, 
where Picard has obviously talked to Crusher, has obviously gotten her permission for Wesley to stay, but he comes out and he's all like, Riker, Wesley wants to stay. Like, you know, I don't know. You know, can, can we do this? And it's so funny because everyone seems in on the joke except for Worf and Data. Data is just confused about what's going on. But at one point, Picard actually says, who's going to tuck him in at night? And Worf very seriously responds, <laughs> I will do it. I will raise this child. <laughs> what did you think about this epic trolling that on was, Wesley's? That was pretty great. So a yeah. couple of things. Yeah. Uh, the first one is, have you ever thought about Picard as Gordon Ramsay? I haven't, no. <laughs> This like is the first time I've like, ever thought of those two as the like same thing. He's like a very gentle Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> okay. But but can you just imagine? Like, just think about it. Okay. Just, just think about it. All right. It's it it could be really good. And of course, the two people who get the jokes are the ones who are incapable of getting jokes. How do I know Dave right. can't get a joke? Because there's an episode about it coming up. Because we're behind in recording these. I've already seen that episode. Ha. Huh. Worf, Worf was great. Worf, Worf steps up. He does. Worf steps up for a pregnancy that never happened. Like he, he would. I, I mean, that's that's. I will raise this child. Yep. It's funny that that's said in the context of an episode where somebody gets pregnant and they have nothing to do with each other. Absolutely whatsoever. nothing. Although I do think that I don't think it's in this episode, but I do think that it underlines the fact that Data and Worf do have a connection in the sense that they are. The two people on this bridge crew who are least likely to understand the mm -hmm. cultural in-jokes of what's right. going on. I think Worf even says that to Data at one point where he's like, I never understand their jokes. So, like, it is interesting to see that connection here. A couple of other things. We have to talk about the beard in the room. Riker has a beard. And he does the classic bisexual chair seating where he steps over the chair to sit I don't, in it. I don't... I don't... Um, I... Uh, okay... Beard is the wrong term for Riker. It's 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 you know it's an F word. I won't say followed by hag. Just remember, you've got the genders incorrect. Okay, all it's, right. It, uh, uh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> People love him with the beard. It it was clearly an upgrade from beardless Riker. Listen, I you know I'm not gonna say that one day I'm not gonna see a Star Trek where I'm like that person is somebody I'm attracted to and. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to see that person for 12,000 more episodes, but it <laughs> hasn't happened yet. Not even with Crusher? She's all right. Okay. All right. Just watch Riker. He's going to sit in chairs in increasingly bisexual ways throughout oh the God, series. Just, he just leans I, into it at listen, one point. I hate chairs as much as the next person. <laughs> in my entire adolescence, there were never four legs on the floor. It's fine. I understand. But oh my God. God. I think part Why of it's such a weird stereotype that does play out. I've seen it. <laughs> what is it? Did they make all the furniture short enough for him to be able to do that? That is clearly a feature, not a bug. <laughs> I do love that he's startled by Deanna's pregnancy, although I do think it's a little <laughs> weird that he asks, well, who's the father? Because like, that's a stupid question to ask at a conference table at your work. But, <laughs> but he does ultimately have big, I will raise this child energy. Like he does, he's there for her. He's like gonna step up. Like I love in their relationship that they are so supportive of each other, even when they're not together. Like it's something that I've always admired about them as, as a couple. 
apart and together. Data gets to actually be the one who experiences Troy giving birth. He watches her. He says, can I stay? Um, Because he's with her when when the contractions start. And Pulaski tries to shoo him off, but Deanna is like, no, 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 he can stay. It's a semi, uh, it's a revelatory experience for him. He doesn't quite have an emotional reaction, but it's clearly something that he sees as meaningful. I'm trying not to. Because he he thanks her. Right. He says, thank you for allowing me to to see this, to be a part of this. I don't know. And I think what I think about it is that it's like the writers of this episode were given all the building blocks to build the episode correctly, but... Instead of this episode, they built a boat. Okay, I gotcha. It's it's just nonsensical. It's like, yeah, okay, I know what you're trying to get me to say, but I'm not going to say it because that's not how this episode went. I mean, that's fair. It didn't come off that way. Two other pieces of important trivia. Jordy officially becomes chief engineer Good in this him. episode. Good like at him. the very beginning, he's finally in the yellow uniform that most of us actually remember oh, him yes, in. Yes. Um, so yay, promotion. Good for him. He, may- ca- he turns out he could be anything. Yeah, he could. Take a look. <laughs> he's the chief engineer. This doesn't mean anything to you right now, but O'Brien is back. He's n- still isn't named O'Brien, but he is credited as transporter chief. In the credits to the episode. Yay for character actor Colm Meany. <laughs> yes. Is that correct? Yes. Good Good for him. All right. Let's move on to where silence has lease. We only talked about one episode. <laughs> this is the second episode. Oh, wait, notice we said nothing about the quote unquote actual plot of the episode. Nothing. Just nothing. The, the plot episode, of the episode. The episode is the, the episode is supposedly about. The virus. Right. It, well, it's not really. That's just something to have the Enterprise hat be doing while this is all going on. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I know. But it's true. Related to this show. I know. And I've heard some stupid things. I've seen some stupid things. <laughs> but this, this is bad. No, I mean, like, there are MacGuffins. And then there's, like, this. I mean, literally the only reason that virus exists is so that way it could be making, uh, giving, it makes them have peril when they need to have peril. So Ian has to dissolve back into the inorganic space being. That's literally the only reason this virus exists. You staring at me and shaking your head is not visible to our listeners. They can imagine at this point. They've been listening long (laughs) enough. They know exactly what happened. They're they're like, I know what that sounds like. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's move on to where Silence has leased, which is the second episode of the season. It was originally released on November 28th, 1988. It was directed by Winrick Colby, written by Jack B. Sowards. The Enterprise encounters a strange phenomenon in space that resists their understanding of physics. In an attempt to understand it, they become trapped while strange occurrences begin aboard the ship. The plot of this is very strange, but it does really fit into a classic TOS-type episode uh, the first half is them getting stuck in this like strange space black hole hole in space, and the other half is them trying to figure out how to be avoid being used as lab rats by Nagilum, who is this like space god being. Partially because it's been a while since we watched this episode, but it feels like elements of so many other episodes of Star Trek that we've watched. Right? I mean, like they they do the self destruct thing. They have to try to outsmart something that is clearly smarter than them, and they manage to do it. 
right somehow against all odds i mean at least at least that's a little bit more believable in next generation than it is with the brain trust from the first crew <laughs> well but the, it's funny that you say that because the self destruct thing is full kirk to me like the I, no, idea it is. of being that's what like I'm saying. the I idea mean, of being like if you're going to fuck with me i'm just going to blow up the fucking shit so they're like so okay so first episode of the season let's do this like high concept to them storyline and then they're like uh for the second episode all right i want everybody to write all the plot elements of star trek that they like on little slips of paper and then you're gonna put them in this hat surprise we're doing all of them in this episode it's like a grab bag, except they didn't grab from the bag. They just took everything out of the bag and were like, let's do it. it it's like one of those things. You know that exercise where like someone starts telling a story? Like yes. it's, it's like a creative writing exercise. Someone starts telling a story and then they're like, okay, stop. And then you go to the next one and they have to continue mm-hmm, telling the story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel like that's the writer's room. Like they're like, it's Im- well, so. Well, it's improv. First they, yeah, first they find a I- hole improv, in space. Improv isn't writing, guys. <laughs> so what we'll do is we'll get the best improv people around and we'll just have a writer's room where they t- <laughs> they're not writing, they're improving. What a way. And if you're hearing this Hollywood, that's not a real idea. Go to hell. Yeah, no. This is Pay not a way people, to get around paying your writers. And and for and put the things back on the streaming. Come on. <laughs> you know what? If this writer, you know what? I it's not going to happen this way and I understand that. But if this writer's strike could get Westworld back on HBO, Along with all the other shows that people actually still care about, the L word, yeah, the 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 re, the the Mrs. revival Fletcher. of right. I mean, like, if this writer strike could get all that stuff put back on streaming, I mean, and they get paid the the yeah two per two percent yeah two percent that's just two percent two percent. Hey. You see what happens when you don't have good writers? Just watch the beginning of Star Trek The Next Generation (laughs) Season 2, and you will see that that 2% is well, my friends, well worth it. It's well worth it. It is well worth it. I do think it's interesting to compare Najillam, who is this, like, he's a scientist who sees them as parts of an experiment, right? He sees this hole in space as his laboratory, and he sees the Enterprise as, let them basically as lab rats. It's interesting to compare this character to Ian in terms of they're both powerful beings who can manipulate matter and time, but Ian, he is curious about them, but wants to experience their lives as an act of empathy. And like you said, it's very clumsily done, very ham-handed. We can argue about whether that was necessary or not. But he ultimately seems to have good intentions. Najillam does not have any respect for the people on the Enterprise. He straight up kills someone in order to understand the concept of death, right? So it is interesting to compare, like in the last episode, we had someone who genuinely wanted to do this out of empathy versus this character who really demonstrates that idea of the cruelty of science. Right. Well, well, and and like I said about our friend Ian, about how it's, it's interesting that he wants to learn how humans function. Like, and the desire to, okay, so here's the thing. I hate myself for doing this. So Lacan, right? Oh my God. <laughs> all right. All right. I'm going down this road with I'm, you. I'm not wrong about this. I just hate myself for doing it. That's all. So anyway, Lacan. 
he you know he he built on disagreed with our man Freud. It's not our man. I feel He's like that's man. the that's the beginning of a lot of theorists of the twentieth century. Well, is well, he yeah. disagreed with Freud and. <laughs> Somebody said in class the other day that Mary Shelley needed some, like, she needed to go to a therapist and talk it out. And I said, well, that's the thing. That hasn't been invented yet. Yeah, that's not a concept that they um, understood. Lacan. <laughs> Lacan. So the beginning of empathy is the mirror phase is what he calls it, right? It's, it's, it's called the mirror phase. It doesn't have to involve mirrors, I promise. But the mirror phase is when you look into a mirror and see yourself and go, oh, shit, that's me. I'm an individual that exists. There's more to it than that, though, right? Because you don't just look at yourself in the mirror and go, I'm an individual that exists. You look at yourself in the mirror and go, oh, that's me, looks over, sees other person, and then understands. Right. right. Because it's an oppositional relationship. Right. Like mm-hmm. you have to understand it, it. And that's where we get second wave feminism from. Congratulations. It's the one and the other. Right. Right. But but child, then one of the most important things in childhood is that step. Uh, when you move on to adolescence, that's where you start to understand what not just that you aren't the center of the universe. It's what that means. And then adulthood is being able to operate in a world where you are not the center of the universe successfully. And so, you know, adulthood is full empathy. Adolescence is development of empathy. Childhood is the realization of empathy, right? The reason that Ian as a character is wrong is that where did that empathy come from? I see. Like, that's weird. Like, these actions make no sense for for a species with empathy. And as I said before... Why do we think that the alien species would have that same sort of learning phase, that same sort of development, that mirror phase that humanity, why, why would we? We wouldn't. That's why um, Charlie Jane Anders' series is about the fact that when these characters get into space, everybody announces their pronouns. Trans characters are treated with respect or just how you would normally treat a person, regardless of the fact that they're trans. However, the good guys want to like genocide every non-humanoid alien species because it turns out you can still be a dick mm-hmm. even yeah. if you're a Democrat. Wait, that's not what I meant, except <laughs> it is. The, the point is that Ian's empathy makes no sense. This alien's lack of empathy makes far more sense. But... You can't take these ideas too far to any extreme because otherwise the Enterprise is dead. Right. So, I mean, it's it's fun to think about Star Trek, but, you know, we talked about The Expanse just recently. I'm not sure if that has been released at this point yet. It will yet. have been, yeah. But the in The Expanse, first contact is something that will basically destroy humanity because we don't understand it. That's real. That makes far more sense. Yeah. Right. This Star Trek is not based in reality. It's based in metaphor, which right. is fine. I like that better than I like hard sci-fi. You know that. But the point is that, like, what what are we trying to do with this character? With Ian, it makes sense. It's stupid, but it makes sense. What are we trying to do here? And again, this part of the problem with this episode is how disconnected the first half of the plot is from the second half of the plot. 
But I think... Turns out you really need good writing. <laughs> yeah. It, this episode is brought to you by, <laughs> but not endorsed by, and certainly no connection to, although I would love to, the Writers Guild of America. We do support you. Even though you've made some of our shows really bad for seasons. It's okay. I it's think not your fault. What we're supposed to get here is the idea that science, the scientific method can be very cruel because he keeps talking about the scientific method and control groups and all of this stuff. And the idea is, is that if he's treating them as lab rats, what does that say about the way that we do experiments and the way that we mm -hmm. use the scientific method to justify mm -hmm. what we've done? Um, and I'm, we're not just talking about animals. I mean, we're talking about like stuff like the Tuskegee experiment. Right. I mean, I, again, I don't want to give them credit for something that they probably weren't thinking about. But I think that is kind of the metaphor we're, well, we're well, pulling at well, here. Well, yeah, that's the yeah. thing, though. When you do science fiction that's rooted in metaphor and you have people who deal with metaphors all the time right. and are aware of it, you can pull lots of stuff out of these episodes that weren't necessarily intentional. I'm just saying, don't give them credit for shit. I mean, hell, the Holocaust had, mm. like, scientific method overtones to it. Like, people were saying they were doing science. Like, Well, it, it, you're one of your favorite, one of your favorite comparisons to Frankenstein is from First Class. Yeah. When, when yeah. Eric said, you made me this way. Right, Which yeah. is exactly what you're talking about. Ha, brought it all the way around. You You're did welcome. bring it all the way around. Yeah, so I think that there, there is that element to this. But again, it's so... It's so weirdly disconnected. I'm not even sure. Again, this might just be them reaching back to that TOS well, right? For like, let's get some plot beats that we already know how to do here. Things, though, that you noticed. Wesley drives the ship now. <laughs> I mean, for a kid who annoys the fuck out of you, you sure gave him a lot of responsibility. I'd hate to see what you did with somebody you like. How do you feel about this new uh, relationship between Wesley and Picard that's not nearly as antagonistic as it was in the first season? Picard seems to trust him now. He's like, all right, kid. You know, if this show was written today, there's so many more fun directions they could go in with this. But once again, I just want you to think about the captain as Gordon Ramsay. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I mean, it is interesting that Picard completely 180'd after encountering the Traveler and the Traveler being like this kid, though. Yeah. Pulaski is once again bigoted towards Data. I think I mentioned this earlier, but it actually happens in this episode. She calls Data an it several times and asks if it knows how to do something when she really gave him bad directions. Mm -hmm. Like she gives him bad directions and then complains when he doesn't know how to do what she wants him to do. Right. And then when she's kind of pushed back on it, she says, I guess I just have to get used to it in like a very like Karen-esque sort of way. Right. Well, you know, it's really interesting. I want Data to clap back when he ever, when she does this, but he won't because he doesn't understand sarcasm. I, I don't think he understands this attitude. Well, Yeah. See, that's the thing. It, well, that's tone, right? And yeah. sarcasm is nothing else if not tone. That's that's humanity, though. That's empathy, once again, here coming through. Like, but man, I really want... I, mm, mm. 
All I wanted was Data to turn around and just give her the business. I wanted everyone else to give her the business. It'd mean more if it came from Data, but sure. Anyway. Any port in the storm. Any, any one of them could have said, like, no, this is not acceptable. But yeah, the way she says that just sounded like someone, like some white lady, old white lady saying something about pronouns. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I guess I just have to get used to your new pronouns. Yeah. Like, it's just so fucking passive aggressive. Anyway. I hate her. I know you do. Um, Jordy has his own bridge station now. I don't think we ever saw this with any of the mm-hmm. other like random chief engineers mm-hmm. that we saw in the first season, but he does have that station now behind Worf that we get to see him at. And I wonder if that's because they wanted him on the bridge more. I mean, we saw Scotty on the bridge sometimes, I guess. But not enough. Not enough. And I wonder if they were trying to like make sure he wasn't siloed right. completely because he spends most of his time down near yeah. the warp core. Yeah. Just an interesting thought. Okay, but speaking of Kirk, we already talked about how the self-destruct is very, mm-hmm. very Kirk. Kirk does this several times. I did want to ask, does this work for Picard, this particular attitude? To me, it seems disingenuous. Picard is not, maybe this is because I know more about how the series goes, but to me, this feels like they're trying to take a Kirk character attribute and map it onto Picard, mm-hmm. and I don't think it works. I don't feel like Picard is this fucking reckless. No, Riker's clearly the the Kirk. Right. And Riker seems very, like, paranoid in this episode about it, which seems weird. I will say, though, something th- that does illustrate the differences between Picard and Kirk is that Najillam asked them to demonstrate propagation. Kirk would have had his shirt off <laughs> <Yeah>. already. <laughs> Kirk would have been like... How did you like- get it off so fast? <laughs> I took it off five minutes ago. Nobody noticed. <laughs> I'm just saying, they're all horrified. Kirk would have been like, eh? <laughs> sure, why, why not? Why not? And then finally, I, I the one thing that I did find very interesting, and of course, it's ruined because it's not real. Because Picard, you know, after they self, set the self-destruct timer, and I do think it's interesting to see, like, what different people are doing during that 20 minutes, right? Like, what do you do when you know you only have 20 minutes to live? But Well, Kirk would know what to do. Kirk would know what to do. Demonstrate propagation. <laughs> Two birds... One Kirk. <laughs> but <laughs> Picard is in his in his quarters listening to um, one of Eric Satie's compositions. And Nerd. he's approached by Troy and Data. And of course, like this is these are doppelgangers. They're not real. Although I'd love to think that Data would actually go talk to Picard, you know, if he or maybe no, he's hanging out with Jordy. Totally. Yeah, you're right. Best friend squad. Best friend squad. We haven't talked about the best friend squad yet. We're going to get there. They don't have enough scenes together in these episodes. But they come and they ask him about different theories of death. And so we're we're treated to Patrick Stewart giving us like a five-minute lecture, symposium on different views of death, like the idea that there's nothing after death, the idea that we transcend after death, the idea that it's like a garden, like you're being transformed from matter to energy. Thoughts? About Picard doing what, doing Patrick Stewart doing a Shakespearean soliloquy almost (laughs) on death. (laughs) Not really, because I, I, I don't know. I don't like my Star Trek waxing poetically. (laughs) Fair. As you mentioned earlier, the character of Najillam was originally named Najillam with two L's after actor Richard Mulligan, who Maurice Hurley wanted in the role. I don't care. It's just a piece of trivia. 
What a rocky start to a season. Well, that's what I was going to ask. How do you feel about this season so far? I mean, it's right up there with... I'm trying to remember if... if um, I'm trying to remember which season of Friday Night Lights was the strike season, but I think it might be the Landry murder season, which, boy, that was a rough start to a season. This is right up here with... Right up there with that. It's bad. Yeah, knowing that the writer's strike and Maurice Hurley... The fact that Maurice Hurley had so much tension with literally everyone, both cast, crew, writers, everyone, do you feel like this is actually like this is this is the kind of product you get when you have a bad showrunner and when you have mm-hmm. writer strike problems? Mm-hmm. Pay Are you, people for their expertise. Is that the hot take here? Don't fire actors who talk back to you. Well, that's a lot less universal than the first one. Uh, that's fair. I mean, the, the the first paying people for their expertise is just. Well, and I also have to say too, um, and I I Let I them remember work from home. I remember reading this before, but pa- Patrick Stewart was also very instrumental in getting Gates McFadden back. Mm-hmm. Um, I the entire cast obviously loved her, but he basically fought for her for season three. Good coming back so that is it's not like the cast was like oh well she's fired like they they right. hated it as a decision too I, this is very late and we do need to catch up on uh, season three of Picard but we did watch the first episode of season three mm-hmm. of Picard so I did want to touch on that here how was watching that first episode now that you know more about these characters well it was very clearly rewarding and um, you know we haven't watched past the first episode yet but hearing the way that this season's been talked about and the idea that this, it, it, it's so funny. Sometimes the line between fan created and what might actually be happening is so thin. And I think it's such a great example here is that, you know, people are saying out of Picard season three, a new show could very easily be born. Is it legacy? Is that what it's called? Yeah. And and so that, I mean, that is really good. You have to feel really good about yourself. If you're putting together a show that people have like you take if you take characters that people love and new characters that against all odds people also love and you do none of them good service and then you turn it around with this first you've done something really wrong and it sure seems like you learned from your mistakes and did something really good after that that's what it seems like and so it's it's interesting to see <laughs> compare it to Star Wars, right? Boy, it's bad to have emotional investment in that lately. Yeah, that is absolutely I mean, true. Like, but what a good time to be emotionally invested in Star Trek, which is ironic because Discovery just got canceled. Right. Paramount Plus just started being dickish and taking things off its service. Not Star Trek, but if it can be anything, it can be Star Trek too. So it's it's really interesting that things are happening in the way that they are. Knowing that these characters have so much ahead of them. Does that boost your investment despite the rocky start of season two? Sure. How was it seeing Bev again with her little streaks? Yeah. Yeah. It's good times. Good times. Good times. Did you like watching her be tough mom? I miss Data. Um, What did you think of Riker and Picard's interactions with each other? Well, I mean, the the thing about episode one is it's definitely, uh, it's definitely doing Star Trek, the motion picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. I expected I expected somebody to get demoted three times, <laughs> you know, and and so it's it's fun to see. It it's really funny because Riker is not Spock. 
No, not at all. But I mean, they're doing, they're echoing plot beats from, from that. And he, he's pretty fun. He's, he's, he's good. He's good. I, there's a lot of humor in the interactions of old friends sometimes. And I think they managed to hit the right balance of these are two people who I I think Shaw is the asshole captain who says like, I know how you guys usually do things. Who's treating, who's again, space racist. Right. But yeah, you know, she does. He says, they refer to her as seven. And she's like, that's not the name he wants right. me to go by. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Um, which she does go by Annika sometimes and seven by at other times. But, but mostly it's, but it's seven. It's, but it's the name you want to go by when when you want to go by. Right. It, right. Exactly. So it is kind of a revisitation of that particular from the, element from the beginning of season two as well. Here's the thing. Here's the problem. And you can say that this is fans. You can say that this is a problem with fan service. And I won't disagree with you. But here's the thing about what happens when a show gives you what it wa- what you want. Whether that's fan service or not. All you can do is say, this is season three of Picard. Why, you person who has paid money to come up with a show, why did it take you this long to figure out that not only was this the right thing to do, it's what everybody wanted? Because sometimes, friends... In life, the thing that you want is the right thing. And sometimes the thing that somebody else wants is the right thing. And if you're really, really lucky, they're the same thing. And in this case, it was. And so like a true human being, they decided to do something else. Because <laughs> people are idiots. And that, that's true for Star Trek showrunners, too. It's true. That's the real lesson of this episode. <laughs> so the other thing we have to talk about is the fact that Picard, Picard is doing good at the beginning of this season. He's figured out his mommy issues. He's found someone to settle down with. He's going to like write his memoirs. Like he's going to lean into this whole retirement thing. Just when he thought he was out, pulled him back in. And then he gets a message from Bev. And I love the the way that they talk about this relationship because one, it's interesting that he hasn't talked to Bev in like twenty years. Like she's cut everyone off, that's, which I assume is something we get into yeah, in later that's episodes. That's not going to go well. But I think it's interesting that not only does he feel like he has to go because obviously, mm-hmm. but Laris is like, yeah, so she's your ex, right? Like at one point, and he's like, yeah, but it didn't work. Like you know, like we tried, it never seemed right. Like it was never the right timing or whatever. And your exact words were, he got through his mommy issues, found someone to settle down with, and then Bev came in like a wrecking ball. Yep. Yep. Do you feel like that is indicative of their relationship and how it's going to go? It seems that way. Yeah? Yeah. Do you think... I'm but, not going to say... You know, the problem is Picard yeah. never learned that he could buy himself flowers. <laughs> he had too many mommy issues. Is that why he never got together with Bev? Who knows? Hannah Montana. Anna Montana. <laughs> All right. We will watch more of season three of Picard. We promise. We will talk about that as we go through this season of Sam Watches Star Trek. Next week, we will be discussing elementary dear data and loud as a whisper. You can find me on Twitter at the by paradox and Sam at Sam underscore Morris nine. Until next time, live long and prosper. <laughs>